This is APX. This is Episode 4, A Man with a List. One of the first things I wanted to know about John Doe was if Prisoner X Subject 75 Dime had given up any secrets about his crimes in the time that John had been interviewing him. So today, I'll share another part of my interviews with John Doe. So you've been spending a lot of time on boats with serial predators. Does that scare you? Well, yeah. I'm, you know, I was never a huge boat person. I've always loved the ocean. Um, the beach is always been the place that I go to to sort of, you know, recharge. And I I, I would say, yeah, it's, it's scary. Um, it's isolating. The boats are not like – they're more like – it's more like a cruise ship. I said boats, plural. I believe it's all the same boat. Um, you're not really given a chance to check up on that part. So it's a little strange. Um, I will say that these guys live, uh, it's a pretty like posh life. It it actually reminds me of um, prisons I've seen in photos that are sort of held up as examples in like Scandinavian, um, in the Scandinavian justice system. Like, you know, they're, okay, don't get me wrong. They're locked in a cell, but the cell's a very nice cell. And all the things are, are are bolted down, but it is like uh, very clean. It's there's like an aspect of it that's sort of luxurious. Um, you know, even the way that like we communicate. I'm sitting in this nice little pod. It's it's nothing like a jail. Um, it's not like the video chats through jail where you're like holding the, the old timey phone and they have the phone and there's a camera in between you or whatever. It's not like that at all. It's, it's, they're actually, um, they're very nice. And, you know, it was interesting to me from the perspective of like overcoming the fear. Like I was able to learn so many things about these people firsthand they're like, you just weren't ever going to learn in the media. And honestly, you're not going to learn most of it in their court cases, like sitting down and doing like the, the, the read through on different transcripts for the ones who actually have been adjudicated in some way. Um, you, you learn things that like, you don't even learn there. And some of that stuff I think is more fascinating than it is scary. What was the most interesting thing you learned about subject 759? Uh, I don't know if there was any one uh, fascinating thing. He's he's a smart dude in uh, sort of like a, a Jed Clampett kind of way, like a country bumpkin. But he's not he's not um, really all that diabolical. And uh, everything was kind of small and on a, a a personal level for him. I, I would say that one of the things I found the most interesting about him was he weirdly was not much of a liar uh and i won't say that he was a good liar or a bad liar like he's a little bit manipulative and when he did that um he's lying with a purpose and you don't encounter that in a lot of these type serial predators um most of them you know they're they're lying as 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 much as 
they're breathing. And he's not quite like that. I mean, he did, he definitely messed with me a little bit here and there. But I'd say the most fascinating part was that overall, um, especially once we sort of broke over the hump of this is your life now, which is hard for some of these guys. Uh, once we did that, it was very much a, um, not always a helpful conversation, but it, it was a pretty honest conversation. He's kind of a, you know, he's a, he's a taller guy. Um, from the pictures I've seen of him versus now, he's gained some weight sitting in here. So that tells you what the food's like in here, but he, He's a little mousy, even for as big as he is, and that threw me off. Like, he's kind of timid a little bit. Did you ever feel like you had broken through and gained the trust of this particular subject? Oh, I'd say I I probably gained his trust as much as it could be gained. I got a lot more information out of him than I got out of – I got a lot more information out of him than I've gotten out of other subjects. But I also – right up front got more information than some of the previous interrogators had gotten out of him. Um, there were different people that had interviewed him along the way related to two local police departments, maybe three. Uh, and, you know, of course, just kind of given the circumstances, the FBI jumped in on it. He ended up in a, like pretty early on about uh, by the time you air this 10 or 12 years ago, he like he got into it with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, it was—it's interesting because, like, looking back and like listening to that, because it's all kind of available. It was made available to me. I think it's available to the public. It was interesting because he didn't really know what he was doing, but he did a pretty good job in spite of not knowing what he was doing. That's always kind of fascinating. Is there anything that you would do differently about how you handled your time with him? I yeah I I would have handled I would have been a lot more straightforward with him, um, especially now that the list is fully formed. Yeah, I would have sat down and been like, "Yes, like I know what you did. I know you. I know what you're up to." I it, it takes a long time to get that kind of like kind of understanding of someone's personality, and I definitely was not perfect in how I handled all that. How did you recruit Seven Five Nine? I did not recruit Subject Seven Five Nine. Believe it or not, he originally was going into a witness protection type program, which is strange to say. I think they thought he had a big number on him, and then when it turned out to not be so big a number, that deal got revoked. Okay, well then, how is he recruited into the program? Like, he came in and, like, he was, like, ranting about he wanted the death penalty. It was actually kind of strange. Um, And that's – it's not that, like, that's that unusual for someone to be caught and then, like, demand that, like, they get the death penalty and everything is suddenly over with. It's the way that he did it was kind of like, I'll give you all the information if you guys execute me. That was kind of a a poor way to go about it. And I actually wondered if the original people that were kind of handling him in the early days of interrogations aren't aware that he is part of APX program, because I thought it might have been something arranged. I was assured later that it was not. What are this subject's specific crimes? 
Oh, his crimes. Uh, there's a whole list here. Um, so, you know, he was an animal abuser. He was an animal abuser early on. And then he was a, um, he, he was an arsonist. He said that he fancied himself a bank robber, but his primary, uh, his primary motivating crime is rape. He is a serial rapist. Um, his, his rape started at the end of 1996 in Oregon. Um, they continued right up to his first murder, which was Memorial Day of 98. Um, he had multiple rapes there of juveniles. Um, it, 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 it's pretty interesting how he gets started. And then everything, uh, as far as geographically goes, you can look back at like where he had been, and that was where he was currently committing crimes. He committed crimes all the way through early 2012, and his uh, he had some pretty brazen crimes along the way. But he was primarily he was a killer, he was a murderer, a serial killer, but his motivating uh, quest or his motivating fantasy, uh, he was a, a what would have been referred to as like a, a sexual um, lust murderer. And were you able to determine who he killed and the details surrounding those murders? What you just want me to list them off? Yeah, I can. Here, I can list them off. I'll just I'll just give you the names for now and their relative locations. Um, and this is me talking. This is not. This is not like official anything. Um, this is something that I'll be chasing long into retirement. But so first up, first victim is a guy named Greg out of Oregon. The second and third victims are a couple. Uh, their names are Angela and Terry, and that was in Washington. Uh, the fourth and fifth victims. Um, this is an interesting one because like. I don't think he found them together. I think the guy walked up on him killing the girl, and he took him out. And that's going to be uh, – their names are Zach and Sally. Um, then the next two victims are Shannon and a girl named Danica. The – like, for all intents and purposes, the uh, – one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eighth victim is uh, a woman named Keisha. Um, the ninth and tenth victim are a couple uh, named Bill and Lorraine. The eleventh victim is a girl named Sam. And I, I have them down for a possible twelfth victim. Uh, it's a woman named Ellie. I don't know for sure that that victim is his. And, like, there's a couple of these are kind of plug and play. For a long time, I had him down for, um, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm going to say it anyways, for Holly Bobo. One of the investigators I work with had pointed out the similarities between uh, Sam and Holly and how there was this whole thing that happened where, uh, whoever had taken both of them had been kind of kneeling and was telling them a story. Now, he recounts his story later for law enforcement, and he's recounted it for me. And he basically said that he was telling her nothing was going to happen to her. This was like a kidnapping for ransom situation. Now, what's weird about that is that's the same thing that Holly's brother saw. And 
ultimately, Holly's case is a local, but they've put these four guys on trial that aren't, I, I don't believe, have anything to do with it because it's not a group crime. Um, and, it, you know, it's an experienced predator that got involved there. And it's just going to be one person. And that's, I think that's, I, I think that's a sentiment that's shared by some of the people that were on the original um, investigating team there. It's very difficult to, you know, contradict your colleagues in court. I understand that. But um, in my opinion, they know who did that one. So, so you know, I couldn't get 759 there. Didn't make any sense. It was just these similarities I couldn't let go of for a long time. But, yeah, that's my list um, of roughly 12 people. And, you know, there's one or two of them there that that probably drop off. But I'm, I, I have 11 I'm really confident on. And then I have kind of Danica, Shannon. I'm not 100% sure what happened with them. And I would be willing to trade this, this woman named Ellie, you know, for them. But it's it's complicated looking at this whole case and going, you know, you're doing this from a non-law enforcement perspective because they consider all of this to be research. And, you know, it's a lot of psychology and math. It's like you're going to hear me say that a thousand times when we talk, but ultimately I think that list is probably pretty close to his list. Overall, do you feel like the APX, ACERA projects, programs, are they worth their while? Are they worth the cost and the toll that they take? Uh, for me personally, no. I mean, I, I don't know what we're getting out of this. It's interesting because I've, I've seen a lot of studies in the last few years on the math of like serial predators and serial killings and how to catch, you know, spies and spooks and like figures that are running millions and billions of dollars of organized crime. And no, I don't think it's worth it because the, uh, this program has some problems. One of the things that happened towards the end that sort of put me over the edge was they've been having security issues on the ship. And it's really difficult to explain that and how dangerous that is that you could potentially have. And, and don't get me wrong, a lot of these dudes are older, and it is almost all dudes. So, you know, it's not like they can swim all the way back to the U.S. and go on a crime spree. But there's some element of, like, if they get off the boat, uh, particularly the younger ones. And that's one of the reasons I think everybody was so fascinated when I brought in 759 and they were able to verify, like I had a recent recording of him. He's younger, you know, he's mid forties right now. So if you look at the more recent serial killers that like did manage to completely get away with it, and there's a couple of them, like they, we know about it now from genetic genealogy, but these guys lived whole lives into the 70s. And nobody knew that they were out, most of them being serial killers with a tie to rape. So serial rapists who killed. You know, and here's how that goes. Like, and, I, and I've talked about this uh, a lot, particularly when, like, 
when I was talking about that case earlier with the Holly Bobo case. Here's how that goes. You can tell who did it by who's like gotten either suspected of, brought in for questioning, or charged. Like for instance, the suspect in the Holly Bobo case that makes sense to me, he's named. You can go out there and find him in the media. He had done a stent where there was a living witness. So he graduated like to killing with that victim. But ahead of that, he didn't know. Like he wasn't killing them. That wasn't what he wanted. He wasn't there to make them die. He was there to sexually gratify himself. That's how you find these predators. They have that kind of record. Even some of the ones that like are unknown serial killers, they were known for being suspects in rapes where people lived. So at some point in time, they realized that if they did not want to spend a long, lengthy time behind bars on a conviction for a violent sexual assault, then they had to, you know, kill the witnesses. It, it's not rocket science that they do that. And you can apply that to 759. You could apply that to Holly Bobo. The reason they start doing the, this killing part, some of them actually like it. For the most part, it's really just a matter of convenience that they don't leave a witness to the other thing they wanted behind. How has the government gotten away with keeping the subjects of this program secret for so long? You want some crazy homework, like, to put all this together? Here's some crazy homework for you. Go back in time, and I'd say the the origins of this project are in the late 60s, like, technically. But... Look at, like, starting in about 85 and just come all the way forward to today and look at how many people wanted for crimes uh, turned up and, like, the whole story just sort of ends with a blurb, not as big as 759. His story has created... Like, he's turned him into, like, Bigfoot, basically. But, like, just look at the concept of killers who are just this little blurb saying that, you know, the subject or suspect or the person of interest or the wanted person or the fugitive killed himself. Either right when the cops got a hold of them, and there's a bunch of those, or right after they go to jail and think to yourself like why that number would skyrocket the way it does. Cause you have to remember this is a minuscule number of criminals to begin with. And that is like the best way to see how we get to 759. So if a guy we caught in 2012 is number 759 out of the eight, 800 ish, you know, who else is in here? It's a lot of people, right? It's like kind of scary. So are you saying that there's a way to track down the other subjects of APX? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the way that you do that, if you go through and just find newspaper clippings, I, I did this with a, with a different kind of crime a while back. 
I got really hung up on certain types of crimes that were deemed like the way that they would say it like out loud the local police would say that there was no danger to the community at this time no danger to the public that started to fascinate me because that was sort of code word a set of code words for like there having been like a murder suicide or a multiple murder and a suicide not just in rural areas though it started to be used in like urban cop speak too it's really interesting and i've picked up on other things in the media that like uh it comes from sort of the age of profiling but you'll hear sometimes like they showed signs of homicidal violence and that means like the people were bound they had zip ties on them or they were duct taped or they were handcuffed but you know they don't go any further they don't say that they were strangled they don't say that they were shot they don't say how they died and i yeah i think if you go back through and sort of piece together all of the quote unquote serial killers for starters and you go okay how many of them died cuz like i said when i say it's a minuscule number like it's like a very small percentage of murders are committed by an actual serial killer it's a really small number they have to have multiple victims right well how many of those guys are never convicted of anything and I know, like, people will point, like, to they'll, – they'll have, like, a top 10 or 20 list, and, and that's the thing. Like, those are the people that the public and the mainstream media thinks of as serial killers. But there's so many more of them that weren't doing that kind of a thing. At this point in the story, I decided to check back in with Jennings because I had a few questions for him about some things that he had mentioned about John Doe as we started putting the full season together. So I wanted to, this is done sort of under the guise of I want to ask you some questions, but the truth is I want to play you a piece of the recording and I want to sort of hear your thoughts on this piece of the recording. Okay, well, we can do that. Do you want to do that now? Sure. Take a listen to this. I always worry that, like, this recording will be the last recording, so i got to get everything out. Obviously, I've been away from what you guys are doing there, but I wanted to leave this for Jennings, and you can play it for him. If something ever happens and I become unavailable for a reason that makes no sense, you can play this for him. So I took off to do something, and I haven't really told anyone what I'm doing. But I wanted to leave this because it was this crazy thing that happened, and I wanted to give, like, the backstory of it where Jennings could listen to it and, and make his own decisions about how to move forward because I don't know how the accusations would look if something were to come out here. I had something very strange happen. So I've been married a number of times. When I say it that way... I'm not making excuses. Like, I made choices, they made choices, things didn't work out. So my first wife, we parted ways a very long time ago. And then I was married to someone else. Now, as of this recording, I have a completely, I have a, I have a new wife. It's the middle wife that we're going to talk about for a second. 
and it really depends on where you hear this in time. I'm not going to give you a, a great timeline because I just want I just want the story to be told. I've been with my current wife for a long time, but I was married before that to someone that I was very briefly married to. And a number of things have happened there. She was with me, or I was married to her uh, when I got shot. And uh, we didn't have the best parting of ways. She just sort of vanished one day. And she had taken, you know, some painkillers and stuff with her. And that had become a part of her existence, so to speak. But she moved. I knew the city she moved to because she put a bunch of stuff in my name. The car was still in my name. There were still cell phones in my name. She's a very interesting person. Before the pandemic, they left. And like I said, they moved somewhere else. There was a bunch of stuff still in my name. I got a phone call from the traffic unit in that city, the major city there, not the little area she lived in. There was a line investigator who was calling to ask about a, a, an accident that had occurred. I, I got on the phone with him. It's very far away from me. There was no way for me to just like run down to the station to answer a few questions or something. There, that wasn't going to be what happened. I get the call. And they asked me if I still own this particular model Jeep. And I was like, no, I did. I do not. And then I thought about it. And I was like, you know, maybe on paper I still do. But the insurance wouldn't be in my name or anything like that, I don't think. I think this would all be related to my ex-wife. And we were officially divorced at that point in time. So they have this video. In this video, it's like a four-way stop like with lights in kind of a, a semi-busy intersection i'm sure it is during tourist times uh this is a major southern tourist destination that she lives in and i knew she had bought a house near there because when you buy houses and stuff like old addresses and phone numbers connected to you if you haven't done all the forwarding and stuff you get a lot of things that sort of indicate someone's bought a house um she's very rich she was very very well off she apparently doesn't, is not paying attention at an intersection, and this car stops in front of her, and she's the second car in the line, and she's just slowly pulling up to what is a red light, and I think she was anticipating it turning green or wasn't paying attention or something. At the last second, she just sort of coasts, and she hits the back of this rental car that's in front of her. She gets out of the car, and it looks like she's, like, walking around to kind of greet that driver, but she's really just looking at the front of her car. And this is all surveillance footage, so it's not, like, the best quality. You can't actually tell who it is, but I know it's her. She's a very particular shape and dresses a particular way, and this was definitely her. And it's her vehicle. You know, the whole reason the cops are inquiring of me about it is because the license plate on that vehicle comes back to, a you know, a vehicle that, I am co-owner on or whatever. Well, and then she gets out and she's like looking at the vehicle and the person's getting out of the rental car in front of her and she just runs away. She does not even shut off the car and the car just rolls out into the intersection and there's a couple of guys like, like running back towards it. One of the rental car people that had kind of pulled over to, uh, get her information like he sees her run away and they all like they managed to get the car stopped and but they sent me this and i was just looking at it and i was going oh my god and i just wanted to know if i could you know get in touch with her so i was like look i've got an address and you guys can go and, and do whatever she did end up getting charged there she ended up getting charged with um a hit and run and maybe a reckless endangerment 
uh, it got taken care of. Like I said, she was, she was very wealthy. There were lawyers to, to assist her with whatever she needed. The thing is, uh, I didn't hear anything from her after that. I didn't actually hear anything from her there. I ended up talking to uh, like one of the lawyers that was involved. And, you know, I was just, I wasn't trying to get any information about her. I was trying to give them information. And I kind of got ignored. Well, during the pandemic, I started getting messages indicating that, like, I had a property somewhere in that region that was going into foreclosure and, like, would I want to fix it? So I wasn't getting, like, the straight-up calls where – I wasn't getting, like, the straight-up information where it's, like, the legal notices. But I had a I had a feeling that it probably had something to do with her. And so I had asked – in the middle of all this, I asked Jennings to help me out with something. And it was probably a mistake, but I didn't have anyone else that I had already got on this little walkabout that I'm on. So here's what sort of went down there. I noticed that she got a failure to appear. And that was unlike her. That was not normally something that happened. But she'd had several of these tickets where her her toll pass had expired and she was getting tickets for that. And uh, among other things, I think maybe some of the tags were expired. The bottom line is something was wrong. I had set everything up at one point for her to where what wasn't managed by a service was on some kind of auto pay or ACH transfer. Like there was, I really had made it so that the accounts that had her trust interest or monthly payment or whatever you want to call it, that came to her because she wasn't working. And she had plenty of money to live on, like more than most people make in a year. She was getting per month. There should not have ever been a way for any kind of foreclosure to happen. But when I saw that there was a failure to appear listed next to her name, I knew there like might be something sketchy going on. And I kind of left it alone. I called back the same people from the traffic unit I had talked to to see if they knew anything about it. And they didn't, they didn't uh, have any information for me. So I don't hear anything for a while. And then I get a notice that the house is being sold and like whatever comes of that is going to be sent to me. So I start digging down to kind of figure out like what was happening there. And I guess as the pandemic wound down and like the foreclosure delays wound down, she got back on the pile and somehow in all of the services that we had in the ACH transfers, something had either expired or they hadn't been able to get in touch with her. And she had a property tax bill that didn't get paid and, you know, kind of built up on itself. And during the pandemic, that would have been a lower priority kind of thing because it wasn't like a huge bill. It's just an unpaid bill. So they were going to put a lien on it and then they were going to foreclose on it. And so by the time I get back involved, I'm not in the U.S. And they basically tell me that the house has been sold and they want to know, like, what to do with, like, what's left there. So I guess it got sold, like, in a courthouse auction. I asked Jennings to to figure out if there's, like, anything he can do to find out what's happening. And he thought I was up to something like fleeing something. I don't know what he thought. So he goes down there. He goes to Florida, and he meets up with the local 
It's a police station there. There's a, a sheriff's office involved in the sale. There's a police station. He goes, basically, he tries to get me back on the phone to do like a welfare check. And I'm like, absolutely good. So Jennings goes, and he's like got me on FaceTime. There's a couple officers there. And they go into the house, and they explain that like the only person that's been in there, somebody went in to, quote, winterize it, which it's a warm region. I don't know why they would winterize or what they would do. Somebody had been in for that. And then someone from the company that had bought the house had gone in to change the locks and, like, look at the house, see what kind of shape it was in, but they had left it in the same condition that it was in. And it was a little house, but it was, like, on the coast, like a very kind of a high-value area. So Jennings is there, and the cops go through the house. There's not She hasn't even unpacked. Like, all her stuff is still in boxes in there. Uh, she had her bedroom kind of unpacked. But there's, like, stacks of mail by the door. And, you know, he goes to the house, and he tells me, he's like, there's no one here. Like, what do you want me to do? And I feel bad for him. But at least the cops kind of got him out of the room as this was happening. But he's, like, FaceTiming the search for me, like, to show him, to see if I recognize or see anything in the house. And he goes back by her bedroom. And I'm like, can you just, like, point in there for a second? And on the bed, like, in the center of the room, she has all these stuffed animals. And she had toted these stuffed animals all over the world. Like, they were, like, a couple of steamer trucks full. And they went with her everywhere. So them being there was bad. And I, I, I told him, I was like, stand by the doorway, but, like, let me, like, see one of the police officers, please. And one of the officers came on and he introduced himself. I was like, can you just check something for me? And so sure, and he's got gloves on, and they had a mask on. And I was like, "Can you just like look at that pile of stuffed animals there on the bed and tell me if there's anything crazy going on there?" So he goes over and like he looks at it, kind of shakes his head, and his partner goes over, and they they clear that room one more time, and then he comes back to the bed, and I was like, "I'm telling you, just take like a little bit closer look." So the one cop leans down and he pulls a couple of the stuffed animals back, and he gasps. And as soon as he gasped, I was like, hey, Jennings, why don't you set back a bit? And uh, Jennings has always been not really all that scared of things, so he's just standing there holding the camera. But uh, on the bedside table, there was, like, her kit she had gotten into using. I guess she was using stuff intravenously, but, you know, she was big into opiates. So her kit's sitting there, and uh, she's on the bed. She's been there so long that she had just sunk down into the mattress where all the stuffed animals and stuff were. Ultimately, I thought there would be, like, kind of a rundown on that. And now Jennings hasn't heard the end of this. He left there that day. And I think he thought that I had something to do with that, and that's how I knew to go over there. He hasn't heard the way I just told this story. But here's the deal. she, Like, her family, and these are very wealthy people. She was Jewish. She wanted to be buried a certain way. She had already paid for, like, her end-of-life services and everything. Instead, they let her go to the medical examiner's office, and there's, like, a rough autopsy done. They settle the estate really quickly, and they cremate her, and they don't even pick up the ashes. So, you know, I think Jennings had been wondering if I had something to do with it because I didn't really call back afterwards yet. I will at some point, but I have something I want to do first. But I just wanted to tell that story so it was out there. I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't hurt her. Um, I wasn't there. I was literally thousands of miles away. They don't even know, like, exactly when it happened, but I promise you 
I was entrenched in a new relationship that, you know, eventually I was going to marry that person. And by the time they found her, she had been there for years. And, you know, it was terrible that it happened, and I didn't really know how to share that with anybody. But in case it's needed and people, like, wonder, here you go. This is the this is that story. So I guess the first question I have is, did you know that that had happened? Well, yeah, I... I dug into this. This is one of the reasons that things stopped and started like they did. If John had done anything to his wife or his ex-wife, I was not going to be able to move forward with this story. And what did you think of all of that? I really wasn't sure what had happened. I dug into this with the local departments there it was really a matter of like really awkward timing because he just vanished. And when he vanished, you know, which we haven't really gotten to in the story, but I think we're close. I was, I was really surprised when, when he vanished because that didn't seem like something that he would do. I'm Beth Maurer. This is APX, Season 1, 7, 5, 9. This podcast is brought to you by True Crime Think Tank and True Crime Excess. Our executive producers are Margaret Elizabeth, John Walters, and Jamie B. APX is written and directed by your host, Beth Maurer, with assistance from Jennings John. Editing by Marlo Boyd, Alex Bryant, and Beth Maurer. Special thanks to Miguel Santos, Arsene Sergov, Hayden Madison, and Roger Kamini for their assistance with this story. Please consider following us or giving us a rating to help us get noticed in the crowd. For more information after this limited series concludes, check out truecrimexs.com. Donations or sponsorship inquiries for future seasons of APX may be directed to True Crime Excess or to Jennings John. We are also sponsored by the John Doe Family Foundation. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, thank you for listening. Next time on APX. I wonder if people think like do they know when someone goes missing do they have a plan like what they do? I saw his like joke on one of the like late night talk shows where like they have binders with um people have like binders with like up to date photos and I I hesitated and I feel really bad that I hesitated because it's like okay, well my friend went missing, but I hesitated. So I don't think I helped them all that much. Well, I mean, you're definitely going to want to use some of the interviews for 759, but listen to this guy. I want to play you a little sample of this voice. This has nothing to do with APX. This has nothing to do with the Acera Project. Like, I'm a little worried that this new thing is what is eventually going to be the thing that actually gets me killed.